Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail, just standing there lying by the Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. Our guest today is my favorite singer, Darlene Love. I first saw Darlene about 30 years ago at the bottom line during a legendary recreation of Phil Spector's 1963 record, A Christmas Gift to You. Widely hailed as the greatest rock and roll Christmas record ever recorded, it still is on the airwaves each and every year come Christmas time. And Darlene still performs live and tours all around the country. Over her career, Darlene's performed with everyone, and she'll tell us stories of working with artists like Elvis Presley, working on Shindig, the great, great rock and roll TV show that was really ahead of its time, where as part of the Blossoms, she was a regular, a great backup singing group. And her stories are absolutely incredible, starting with where she began as a young girl singing in the church in Hawthorne, California. Enjoy our conversation with Darlene Love. We sure did. The voice of some of Phil Spector's greatest creations. And if there's any justice, she's a future member of the Hall of Fame. She's on the ballot this year, so let's get those votes in. She's a one-woman wall of sound, the lovely Darlene Love. tonight to pay tribute to the great Darlene Love, who is finally getting her due. How I love Darlene Love. Joyous, beautiful, and free, this is Darlene Love. What a voice, what an unquenchable spirit, what a journey, and what a great, great artist. I'm particularly glad to be here, because at least now, when you Google Bette Midler Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, something (laughs) will come up. So I'd love to start with you and go back to, I'm going to challenge you a little bit okay. and go back to, go back to Hawthorne, California. And I'm going to throw a name at you that I'd love to hear you talk about, Cora Martin Moore. Oh my goodness. Now that really takes me back. Oh my God. <laughs> there you go. I was living actually with my grandmother at that time in Los Angeles. My whole family, we had moved back from Texas to California. And I, the whole family was living with my uh, grandmother and grandfather until we found a place to live. And uh, that's when I started going to a church called St. Paul Baptist Church. Because uh, my girlfriend who lived down the street from me, that's where she and her, her whole family went. Plus, they had an unbelievable junior choir there that was unbelievable. You had to really be a great singer. You actually had to audition to get in that choir. And Coral Martin was the the director of that choir. And uh, it was unbelievable to sing back in the 50s with people who could really sing. I think that's where I horned in all my harmony singing alto or, you know, with the sopranos, the second sopranos, the tenors, and the bass singers. And Cora was amazing because she was an unbelievable gospel singer. Plus, she had a mother who was a famous gospel singer. And uh, singing with her was amazing because I could not read music, but I had an amazing ear. 
and so did she, because out of, it was 75 voices uh, in church choir, and she had um, a music store um, in Central Avenue in Los Angeles, and when she found that she could hear one of the singers in the choir had an unusual voice, she would invite him to come down to the music mark to rehearse to be the, one of the soloists, I guess, for the next, maybe the next Sunday or the next couple of Sundays. The wonderful thing about St. Paul Baptist Church, they had a national radio broadcast, and the choir sung for that broadcast. And uh, to be able to sing in the choir, and then she voted me out, pointed me out to come to be one of the soloists for the choir. That was like the beginning of my career, I could almost say, because... Our church had probably about, I would say, maybe a thousand members, which in those days was a huge church. Not like they are today, but that was a big church in California. And it was known worldwide. And uh, to get in front of that many people to sing a solo with the choir, it was, I don't even, I don't think I even thought about it at the time. I was so nervous. I think about it probably more today than I did back there, but all those years ago. But that was an amazing adventure for me, and I call it an adventure because coming up, I never dreamed of being a singer, or especially what I'm doing today. So that was like a little peek into what my future was going to be. Fantastic. And Darlene, talk a little bit about, you know, I think most of us don't really understand the evolution of music from the church and the role of gospel music and the number of singers who crossed over. And I want to ask you about Sam Cooke in a little bit, but talk about the role of the church and gospel music in particular, how influential it was and how it shaped what was to come. Well, you know what? That is an amazing question because most singers, not the ones that are today, but the singers of my era, you could almost say 99.5% of them all. I mean, from country music to blues, mostly all of those singers came from churches. And I think the difference is, is how with the country and Western singers, they were in, the, in their little churches back in the woods where they just had a guitar, you know, funny, uh, washboards, pans, whatever you want to find, and came up. That was their kind of music, was, was their gospel music. Ours was more with a, a big beat and loud singing, you know, from, as we used to say, from the depths of your soul. That's what uh, Cora Martin used to say, sing from your belly. <laughs> and that's where all of us came from. I mean, you name it, if you go back in most of the singers, especially the history of uh, rock and roll and, and uh, pop music, rhythm and blues, 90, I would say almost 99% of them came from churches. Little churches where we used to call storefronts, where you had maybe 25, 30 members, but they always had, it was amazing, a rickety piano. <laughs> Somebody who couldn't really play that well, we called it banging on the piano, <laughs> you know, because they really couldn't read, but they could get in the key you were in. And they would just play the songs because most of all of those singers that came back up in that day learned on the job. It wasn't about uh, going to a teacher to teach you how to play piano or an instrument. Most of them all taught themselves how to play. And when I say rickety-bang piano, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those stand-up-right pianos. It looked like a big box. And that's what we came on, those kind of pianos. And from that, the drums came in because they always had somebody that was beaten on something back in those days. Uh, and, and that's where the tamarines came from because somebody always had a tamarine, somebody to keep the beat because then I, I really do mean, uh, I remember having the drums come along 
just about before any of the other things came up. And then, as you know, little by little, the old uh, guitar and then the big time organ came in, you know, which was in the 60s. So we learned our trade really from gospel because we just took it straight what I was doing in church for, you know, 20 years. I took it right out into secular music. It, it didn't, and the only thing changed was the words. But the music was actually the same music because we just didn't think about it like that, you know. But we all came from gospel music, and I think it had played a huge part in starting our music back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Mostly all of it came from church because most of your singers, they stayed in gospel you know, a lot of the groups back in those days, they never left gospel, but some of us did. Because one thing about it, we could make more money because singing gospel music didn't pay you. You were singing unto the Lord. I said, but I think the Lord wants us to get paid. <laughs> 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 Y'all are taking up these offerings, you know, for the church and for members. But what about us? You know, we used to have what they call afternoon services where we get together with all our great gospel singers and sing at somebody's big church or whatever. But we never got paid. We just went and sung. It was the afternoon service, and we were all singing. And um, that was really, really big back in the, the 40s and the 50s. Because, number one, that's all our parents would allow us to do back in those days is just sing gospel music. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the term, the devil's music. Mm -hmm. is what the secular world was about. So we weren't allowed to even sing secular songs, you know, but gospel had a huge, huge stand on uh, what the world is singing. And what it's singing now, this is really a big mark for them now, because now gospel singers are getting paid, just like us. <laughs> right. Which is great. <laughs> right. So I'm reading a book about Sam, Sam Cooke, who also grew up singing in the church, and went from the soul stirs and then went out on his own. And they talk a lot about the challenge and the struggle of exactly what you just hit, hit on, which was going from singing gospel to singing secular music. And I know Pop Staples, when the Staples singers crossed over, I know he struggled right. with that also. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't think you should take your talent that God gave you and give it to the world. But then I, we, a lot of us always say, well, why not? Why not take it to the world? Who can get next to these people but us who came from gospel? Because they want to know what we're doing or how we're doing it and so forth and so, so forth and so on. And we did. And knowing Sam, uh, you know, he, we, he talked about cause his father was a, a minister like mine. And uh, the church people got on him badly. Yeah. In the Bible days, she had been sick, sick so very long. I mean, it's a wonder he made it out because he really got hit hard. Um, because he was a soul stir, which was a huge gospel group. They sure didn't want to let him go. But you know, he could look further than the church. He wanted to go out beyond that. And it was also about helping other entertainers because that's what Sam was really starting to do before he got before he got killed. He was starting to bring young entertainers into the business. So he really did have a hard time from his his father and from the church. And your dad, you mentioned, was a reverend minister as well. Right? Did he? Was he? Happy to let you go and sing. I know your first. You know, we had the. I want to talk about the echoes and then the blossoms. But and your your sister, I think, also sang. Yes, my sister was a group a member of the group of the Honeycomb, and she right. had number one hits records too. My father and mother wasn't so much the ones who told us that we shouldn't do it. They used to just just be careful, girls, be careful, and they knew uh, the parents of the other singers we with, and we always had to check in, you know, we had to make, when you got where you were going, especially when we're still living at home, you had to call and check in, we're home, we're, we're on our way home, or we're here, where we're supposed to be, you know, and uh, it was more or less the members 
of our church that gave my father and us a hard time, which is, you know, it's amazing. It's not any of your business. <laughs> you know, if your parents don't mind you doing it, who are you? You know, because that was also during the time I was doing this television show called Shindig. And it was the number one rock and, you know, rock and roll uh, television show because it wasn't any before Shindig came along and it was international. From ABC Television Center in Hollywood, Shindig! Welcome again to Ohama More Music for a Minute than any other show in television. The show that you made the highest rated musical program of the television season. And they would actually call my father and say, did you see your daughter on that television show? I just can't believe you allow her to do that. Well, my answer to them from my father was, well, why were you watching it? Right. Had you not been watching it, you wouldn't have seen her. <laughs> so it's 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 not, it's bad for her to do it, but it's not bad for you to watch it. So you know it's one of those kind of games they all play. You know what we used to call hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You know, so they can watch it, but you better not be doing it. <laughs> And talk about, I guess, your first band that you were in, or first group that you were singing in, I should say. Was that the Echoes before the Blossoms? That was. The Echoes was uh, a few years before the Blossoms, because I was still just, you know, singing in, in church. Um, somebody introduced me to them, and actually, to say they were getting ready to make a record. I mean, that group was already formed. And uh, they were at least four to five years older than me. And what I think, yes, I did meet them, one of the members in school. He was, uh, I was still in school. He was already out of school. And it, it, it's funny, it came from church. Somebody knew me from church and said, you know, well, she had a good voice. Why don't you audition her? They auditioned and I got in the group and we had one record. That was it. I wasn't in the group no more. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that was another, you know, introduce. I, I was, um, my voice was so mature by the time I, you know, 13, 14 years of age. That I sang with older people. And uh, so it didn't really last that long say with the echoes because I was still living at home, you know, and it wasn't really that bigger deal. I recorded that one record with them. We didn't do any uh, personal appearances. You know, only reason I really know I took a picture with that group because we were with this record company and they wanted us to uh, start recording. So they took uh, pictures of us immediately. But other than that, I don't even think the group even lasted that much more. Because all the singers were were uh, high school friends, and once everybody started going all their way, you know, that's the reason why I say that group didn't really last that long. The Blossoms was really my introduction to show business. Well, well, I won't believe. I learned all I know is from being with the Blossoms because I was in my last year of high school and uh, started singing with them. And um, from there, uh, just singing background, we went on to sing background. We were the first black group, actually, to start singing background for records. So that was my initial, ah, the Blossoms. And you know, it was like, wow, my mother and father got to meet them and liked them. They met all their mothers and fathers. So we were very well chaperoned, you know. So and I, I know that's the one reason why my parents allowed me to do it, because I was still in my last year of high school, 17 years old. But the, the girls were already in college. 
So see, they were like four and five years older than me. So I had to be well protected and they wanted me in the group. So they went along with whatever my parents wanted to do. They went right along with it. Plus, you know, back in those days, it was very innocent what we were doing. You know, as we, they called it back in those days, bubble ground, bubble gum music. <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> and Darlene, how did the, how did they find you? You were in high school. Was it through the church? Was That's it somebody exactly. that heard you sing? The Blossoms exactly found me in church. Uh, One of the girls in the choir, St. Paul Baptist Church, where we were all in this choir, was getting ready to get married. And they were friends of the Blossoms. And uh, they saw me sing at church and asked me if I would audition for the group because one of the girls that was in the group was uh, pregnant, getting ready to have a baby, and they needed somebody to replace her. Just for a time until, you know, after she had the baby and then I would go on my way, but that didn't happen. Once I got in the group, you know, they wanted me to really replace her. And uh, that's actually, that's funny because that's exactly how I got into show business. Singing in the church, literally. (laughs) Right. And with the Blossoms, you did do a lot of personal appearances. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because the Blossoms never had a hit record. We had hit records with other people, but we never had. They. It's amazing. Back in those days, they did not know what to do with black groups because we didn't sound like the McGuire sisters or any of those singers. Good night, my love. You know, our, our, our sound was not theirs. You know, it was a sound that was very new in uh, recording business. And they had no idea what to do with our voices. So we went from Capitol Records to Columbia. I mean, we were all over the place. And they couldn't find any material for us. Uh, back in those days, they had two stations, uh, AM and, and mostly AM back in those days. And on AM, they had black music and white music. And it didn't cross over. You know, so they had a hard time. They said, where are we going to put them? They don't sound really black, and they don't sound white. So we did a lot of recording, but none of our music actually charted. And uh, so, therefore, we really became great background singers because we could sing anything they wanted us to sing. You know, we you name it from A to Z, we work for them. <laughs> Well, you know, we'll talk about 20 Feet from Stardom a little later, your Academy Award winning film, but you can really trace the narrative now hearing you going back to the church and singing in the choir, you know, under the direction of Cora Martin Moore, and then you're, you know, with the echoes, and then as you were just saying with the Blossoms, that you could sing with anybody and, and how important background singers were. Yeah, and you know, we were really blessed because I knew harmony. And when I first got with the Blossoms, it was four girls. And they had a manager. His name was Eddie Beal. And he was actually their manager, but he was also an arranger. And uh, I used to, we used to, they used to pick me up from school on Fridays and we'd go to Hollywood and we would rehearse. So most of those first year, years I was with the Blossoms, we were rehearsing, learning how to sing background not knowing that where that background was going to take us, but it took us from Eddie Bill's office all the way to the top of the, of the ladder of background singing in, in records. And uh, it was amazing. I love even today singing background. Matter of fact, some of the later background I did in the, the 80s and the 90s and 2000s were with people like Luther Vandross, Aretha Franklin, you know, so like being called from them to do background was, you know, wow, I started all this in church, and now look at me who I'm working for. <laughs> yeah. So it was amazing that that actually happened. So the Blossoms did a lot of background work, and you may not have had any hits because they couldn't find one for you, right. but you sure performed on a lot of hits. Oh, my goodness. Um, when it's, And, you know, it was amazing when they found out I could do what they call riffing, and uh, and I mean, riffing today is, is, I mean, anybody seems like can do it, but I would, I would put tags on records, uh, especially when I started working for people like um, uh, Lou Adler, who had 
Johnny Rivers and uh, the Beach Boys and uh, the Mamas and the Papas and all those people. And he said, okay, do a little something on the end. And I said, okay. So I would just make up something to do. And that took us to a whole nother group of people to work for when they found out we could even do that. You know, so, and a lot of the people that I started out with doing background for with the Blossoms end up being really good friends today. Still good friends, and they are moguls in this business, like Lou Adler and Herb Albert, <laughs> who we worked with them for about four or five years, constantly trying to get Herb Albert a hit, because he wanted to be a singer so bad, but that man could play a trumpet. <laughs> and we used to tease him. he say, you better try to go on and pick that trumpet up, child, and maybe something will happen to you, and then now look. <laughs> Where he landed. Going back to that era, what were the artists or some of the songs that really make you smile wide? Well, you know what? Uh, a lot of the times the singing, um, we never, I never thought about that back in those days because it was like, oh, this is cute. You know, and where is it going? Because we didn't know where it was taking us. Uh, what we remembered most than anything were the hits. Now, we did a lot of sessions <laughs> that you never heard the record. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and I would say 50%, 60, 70% of the records we did were not hits. So you might remember the artist, but you don't remember, you know, what happened. Because if back in those days, we did, the whole group was there, all the musicians, uh, the singers, the artists, everybody was there recording at one time. Then it finally phased out to, you know, the musicians and the singers, and then they started putting the lead on. But back in those days, the, the greatest records we did back in those days were with Sam Cooke. Because I knew Sam from gospel. So to actually be recording with him in secular music? Oh, please. Everybody loves to cha-cha-cha mm. Little children like to cha-cha-cha They like to cha-cha-cha So those are the kind of things we, we remember the big ones more than we did the small ones and talking to the girls All the Blossoms are still alive and the original Blossoms anyway and if we get together or we're talking on the phone or something we remember the Sam Cooke sessions because number one, he was black and he was huge. You know, so I think, matter of fact, I think that's the first black artist we ever worked for, uh, you know, was, was Sam Cooke. So maybe that's why we remember him, too. And plus, the two records that we did with him were big hits. So, you know, you're never going to forget that. The first background session that you did, and it was a hit record. <laughs> that was Everybody Likes the Cha-Cha-Cha right. and Chain Gang. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they still sing those songs today. And he did cross over to the white audience big time. Oh, yeah, big time. I remember um, when the Ed Sullivan show was on, and he was uh, cast to go on the show and sing. And he had, they had already re announced that he was coming on, and that night that he was supposed to call Ed Sullivan said, well, we've run out of time, and we won't be able to have the great Sam Cooke to sing, but he'll be back. And it was an outrage. They got more letters for him, I guess, because a lot of people wanted to see Sam, especially the black community. And everybody was watching Ed Sullivan because there wasn't no other television show on that time of the night but Ed Sullivan. And he got so many letters written in about having Sam on the show that the next Sunday he was on. Because he was on his way back home to California because they said that they had run out of time or they had too many people on the show. So they cut him rather than anybody else. And, uh, boy, they got so many letters. They said they can't remember getting that many letters about somebody being on that show that didn't show up because they ran out of time. And we all, I'm sure you really know the problem was even then, well, not having Sam on probably ain't going to be no big thing. So. Let's cut him and they have somebody else on, which they actually did. And they got a, a earful. And so the next 
Sunday he was on the show, and then you know how Ed Sullivan was. He was like, well, back for, from popular demand. <laughs> We're going to have Sam Cooke on the show tonight, <laughs> which was funny. So that was, that was another amazing thing that happened. You remember those kind of things that happened because it's like history-making. You know, so no matter how long, you know, I was living right around the corner from where uh, Sam Cooke got killed. So those are the things I'll, I'll probably remember until the day I leave this earth, you know, where a lot of things that happened in our lives. And they were like, ah, okay, so we didn't even realize or remember we were the first black background singers to sing on, on records. Because they didn't have groups at that time. They just had what we call singers, readers who could read music. And they were white. So we made a big stand for that, you know. And they didn't even realize we couldn't read because we would catch on so fast. Tell us about your uh, work that you did with Elvis Presley. By then, we were the biggest background singers in the business. Um and uh, they were getting ready to do this show with Elvis Presley. We had heard about it, but we didn't think any more about it because we didn't know who was going to be involved or anything. And the the producer knew the Blossoms from Shindig, and he said to make this really special, let's let's call the um, Blossoms to do the session. So we were with a choir. And then they had us to come in to make the so- the choir sound blacker. That's what we were hired for. And only problem, not problem with only great situation, Elvis came to the recording, which he wasn't supposed, he was, they kept saying, no, Elvis is not coming. We're just going to do the music and, you know, he'll be at the filming or whatever. But I guess he was going to come and sing after we left. But um, he showed up. And we were all so starstruck. It was like, y'all, Elvis is in the room. <laughs> there must be lights burning brighter somewhere. He had heard that I was a gospel singer and that, um, you know, I really love gospel music. And he loved gospel music, too. And he told us a few stories about how he learned from gospel music and how he loved gospel music. And one of the stories that he told us, I think, that really touched me was in the South, uh, black churches had service at night. And because it was hot in Texas during those times back in the South, people in their little churches would leave their windows open. And so you could hear the music at night. You know, everybody could hear it. And Sam said he used to go up to black churches and just go up to the windows and just listen to gospel music. And he said it really did change his life. That was the heart of his singing. And I never forgot that story. And uh, we started singing with him. And and many times during the recordings and during the filming, we would actually, if we had 10 or 15 minutes, Elvis would go get his guitar and say, come on, girl, just go sing. And we would sing gospel music. And that was a moment in time that would probably never go away. Those some things that happen to you, you know, you will reflect on those. You something that's indented in you, and you will not forget it. And that was our life with Elvis Presley because it was special. And the reason we were in part of the uh, filming was because Elvis wanted the blossoms in that part of the gospel. So it was really great. It was really, really, really great just to be around him and find out he was such a great guy, so nice, so humble, you know, so it was wonderful. Never, those one of those things you never forget. So let's talk about another important figure in your career, probably had some different characteristics, and talk about He's a Rebel in 1962 and Phil Spector. Yeah. <laughs> you, you knew it was coming. <laughs> well, of course. How could you talk about me and not talk about him? <laughs> it, it, uh, he was amazing because we were working as a background singer for his partner, which at the time we did not know. Lester Sill was uh, Phil Spector's partner, and he would pay me to do the lead, 
Well, then I figured, well, you know what? If I'm going to sing the lead to this song, and it probably ain't going to be a hit anyway, I'm going to get paid for it. So I charged him $1,500 to sing it, and he didn't mind paying it. I should have knew right there something was up. <laughs> he paid me that much money. <laughs> and um, so he, he took me to the studio, and he taught me the song. And I went, okay. I didn't like the song, believe me, when I first heard it. I, I'm saying, now, this man don't know nothing about what he's doing. This is a, such a stupid song. He's a rebel. Anyway, I went in the recording studio. He taught me the song, and then he taught the background uh, singers, the Blossoms, the song. And we went in, and we recorded the song, and that was it. I got paid a lot of money for it. Thank God I sent it through the union, because I probably wouldn't have got paid. No one feels better. And um, so the song became a hit within a month. It was climbing up the charts like you were pouring hot water on it. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> this was our first charted record, especially with me singing lead on it. So, of course, nobody knew it was me. They thought it was the Crystals. Plus, we did it under the name of the Crystals, and we knew that it was going to be a Crystal record. So within a month, the record was number one, and it stayed on the charts a couple of weeks at number one. So, boy, this was this put Phil Spector on the charts. It also put Darling Love on the charts because people started finding out it wasn't the Crystals singing that song. They found out through musicians and people that we knew that it was me singing it. But the industry really didn't know it was me. But, you know, the people that worked on the outside, like musicians, radio people and stuff like that, knew it was me that was singing the song. So that started me out as a solo singer, as Darling Love. My name got hooked up with Phil. Phil's was becoming... Phil Spector was becoming a great producer, so Darling Love was his vocalist of the hour because he hadn't met the Ronettes yet. Only group he had was the Crystals, and he had me as a Crystal. Uh, the confusion a lot of times was I was a member of the Crystals, but I was never a member of the Crystals. I just sung their hit records. The biggest ones they had was the ones I did. See the way he walks down the street. That's the way he can make you think, wonder why, you know, when I started recording for Phil's, my, my, my songs were top 10 songs or top 20 songs, but they were never number one songs. My number one song was uh, He's a Rebel and uh, He's Sure the Boy I Love, which is amazing, you know, so you can't figure this business out. So that was my introduction to Mr. Spectre. <laughs> And what what do you remember, Darlene, from that first time when you went from his partner to Phil? What was your first impression? My first impression of him was, where did this man, weird man came from? He was in a suit and tie. Uh, he wore those shoes that they wore back in England with that big block heel. I think they call it a Spanish heel or something that the Beatles used to wear. We call it a block heel. I don't know what they call it what they really did call it. But it made him a few inches taller because I don't think Phil was more than five, four, five, five. When he, and went, when he had those heels on, he might have been five, six. So he was a little man. So I just called him the little man with the toupee because I, I think I'm the only person that realized he was wearing a toupee. And I just really made a joke out of it, you know, but he was very insecure about it because he used to say, is something wrong with my hair? Why are you looking at my hair? I said, oh, nothing. It just, it just stands out because <laughs> it was very neat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you know, especially back in the 60s, you didn't, uh, everybody's hair wasn't neat. You know, it was raggedy all over the place, you know, long hair, you know, and stringy. And um, so that's how we ended up meeting and getting this relationship going because I was very honest with Phil about everything. You know, I talked back to him where nobody else would. And uh, the only thing he did, he got me when it came to recording me because we'd go into the studio to record a song for me. It was going to be my next record. Like when we went in to record He's Sure the Boy I Love, I had signed with Phil Spector. And we went in to do He Sure the Boy I Love, which was supposed to be Darlene Love's first single. And he put it out under the name of the Crystals, too. 
because he said he needed the same sound with the same voice because nobody's voice in the crystal sounded like mine. You know, Lala, who was their lead singer, wasn't, it sounds nothing like me. But back in those days, they didn't really, they did, oh, it was just the crystals. One of the girls in the group, you know what I'm saying? So they never figured it out until much later after the songs were number one records. So my first record with Phil Spector as a solo singer was Wait Till My Bobby Gets Home. So you got $1,500 for He's a Rebel, which right. became number one record. And... Did he pay you for that second one? Oh, yeah. He paid me big time for that, too. Well, you know what? We went through the union with, uh, thank God, we had sense enough. Well, we had been background singers for about five or six years when we met Phil Spector that we knew to put everything through our union, which is Astra. And uh, he had to pay us. He didn't have to pay me $1,500 because we, we made twenty two fifty an hour, which back in the 60s is a whole lot of money. Uh, and the minimum session was two hours. So we were always in the studio with Phil anywhere from five to ten hours. So I just made my money. I charged him $1,500 an hour. Not just the, for the session I did for He's a Rebel, I charged him a flat fee. But after doesn't care how much they pay you as long as they pay you the minimum, which was twenty two fifty an hour. So I was charging him $1,500 an hour. So I made good. Good, good. <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit about the Christmas record. And we always see your mm -hmm. show every year when you come around, a love for the holiday show. It, it, the year is not complete without seeing you perform those incredible songs. Take us back to that Christmas record and your remembrances of that time. Um, the Christmas album is probably as famous today as it was when we recorded back in the 60s. All right, this is going to be great. In 1963, my next guest recorded a song called Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. It was that very first rock and roll Christmas hit ever. Yeah, and has been released as a single every year since. It is also one of the most popular tunes on this legendary album right here, Phil Spector's Christmas album. There it is, right there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here singing it tonight with our band, please welcome the one and only... Darlene Love. something that nobody had done yet. People were singing Christmas songs. They were like, you know, Christmas album, but you know, like Silent Night and all of those really, and singing them really respectful, like Christmas songs were, you know, that we were doing back in those days. Uh, but to have a rock and roll Christmas album was amazing. And then I had been working at the bottom line. Yeah, this has been over 35 years ago. <laughs> It was my first gig in New York City. That's why I can remember it. And uh, they came up with this idea to have a, a show with all the original people who were on the album. Uh, we got pretty close because we couldn't do the crystals because I was a crystal. I, those were my songs. <laughs> so, But we had Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, and we had the Ronettes, and then we had, of course, Paul Schaefer. And we actually performed and brought alive that Christmas album because we did every song that was on that album. And it was an, an amazing show. Matter of fact, you couldn't even get a ticket to see that show when people found out we were doing it. So we were supposed to be there for three days. And we ended up being there for a month. <laughs> and what is it about that record that has stood the test of time? Well, you know what? Because it was a not only just a record that was just thrown out there. Oh, Christmas rock and roll. It was uh, the technique of it all, the whole, the love of it all. Everybody put everything they had into that, that, um, that album. Uh, we had, you know, we had so many famous people, musicians that was on that album. You know, we had Glenn Campbell, who wasn't a star yet. None of these people were stars yet. We had Glenn Campbell. We had, um, Leon Russell, Hal Blaine. I mean, we had the cream of the crop. They were the musicians during that time. And uh, Phil Spector hired all of them. And, you know, they had a hard time getting 
to other sessions that they did because Phil Spector almost like hired every one of them just for him. You know, so, but with that, they got more famous as musicians, where the Blossoms even got more famous for doing sessions. We couldn't even keep up with all our work, and neither could the musicians. Those musicians were the musicians who everybody wanted. So if they wanted them, then they also got us. So we all became very, very good friends because we were together night and day. You know, some of our early sessions started at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the last one would be like at 10 o'clock at night, and we just couldn't keep up. Not we couldn't keep up, the Blossoms, physically, because we were the singers. The musicians could keep up because, you know, they were playing instruments. They didn't have to use, like, their, a part of their body to, to do what they were doing. So the heart and soul of that Christmas album was everybody who put their, their input into it because Phil Spector was great as the, the, the chief runner of it, but then he also asked the opinion of a lot of us who were in the studio recreating this album, and I think that's what made it so good. You know, everybody putting their, their put into the album, so it was gigantic. And I think that album, I, you know what, I had this idea because, um, what's her name? Uh, she made her Christmas album, the number one Christmas album last year, Mariah Carey. So I'm going to call all of my Facebook, um, get in touch with all of my Facebook people. I have a few thousand of them. And we're going to make Chris, we're going to make Christmas Baby Please Come Home, the number one Christmas record. I think it's time. <laughs> because they put it out every year it's just that you know it charts but it doesn't chart chart you know what I mean like a, a number one record well I said to myself if Mariah Carey can do it Christmas Baby Please Come Home can do it also so I'm on a mission this year <laughs> I'd love to hear about your long wonderful relationship with David Letterman and before I let you go, uh, we got to talk a little bit about 20 Feet from Storm. Okay, you know, it's amazing because while we were doing uh, Leader of the Pack at the bottom line, Paul Schaefer came and started playing Phil Spector. And uh, he invited David Letterman down to see uh, the Christmas show and Leader of the Pack. And David loved it so much because we ended the show with Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. He's That night on the show... He, t he said, um, we need to get that girl on this show that sings that Christmas song. And that's how it started. And I thought it was only going to be that one show. And then they came up with the idea, why don't you come on every year and sing this song? And then I still like, well, how are we going to do that? You know, and then uh, next year they called. I was like, okay. Then the next year they called. And I said, wait a minute, you guys got to give us a little more time. I know you guys know way ahead of time when you're going to be doing these shows. So you have to let us know. Then we can actually build my show around this show, like be in the area when it's time to do the David Letterman show. Because my Christmas shows really started picking up around the, the country. So we made it so when it was time to do the David Letterman show, we usually knew six months in advance. Oh, brother. You get a show, try to do this every now and then. And I'll let his gentleman performing her holiday classic for us, our good dear friend, Darlene Love. And uh, that's how that started. And 29 years, which is amazing for anybody to do one Christmas show, let alone... David Letterman for 29 years. Amazing. And David and I, that was the only relationship we ever had, was that song and that show. He just looked forward to that. But other than that, we didn't have a really relationship where I talked to him all the time or where I, whether I saw him or whatever. I was able, though, to go down to the show every now and then if I was in the neighborhood and say hi, hi to him, which it was funny. People would go, is it Christmas time already? <laughs> and I said, no, 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 I'm just visiting, that's all, you know. So that was the relationship of there, that. 
But let's hear about 20 Feet from Stardom. Well, 20 Feet from Stardom started out as uh, a friend of ours had this idea. He said, oh, background singer, wonder, wonder what that is all about, these singers. The rock and roll people like Bruce and Elton John and, and Stevie wanted to know who that girl singer was. My life has been all about trying to make a success of the gift that I had. And uh, got in touch with me through uh, Lou Adler and uh, called me up one day and said he would like to do an uh, uh, introduction of something about um, um, 20 Feet from Stardom, an interview he wanted to do with me. And I said, well, you know, that probably don't last. We've done a lot of these. And, you know, but I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, but we were on the phone for about two hours. <laughs> and then that's where he came. He said, well, what about other people? And I started telling him about other people he should call. And then before we knew it, this thing had blew up. It be, it got bigger than life because the more we talked about it, other background singers wanted to be a part of it. And that started, you know, then they ended up starting getting in touch with entertainers who had had great background singers. So, you know, it ended up being unbelievable. And, and, and that the whole idea that from that conversation that I had with the producer, uh, turned into me being on the stage at the Academy Awards and not only being there, but winning it. And the Oscar goes to... 20 feet from stardom. Morgan Neville, Gail Friesland, and Katrine Rogers. You know, and then the following year, we won a Grammy for it. So it was, it was all very, very amazing. And it's a part of my life. I can look up at my... Uh, wall and see my Grammy and, and, and can see my induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Everything that I ever wanted to do was to, to work and be in this business and, and share my talent with every, everybody else. The one thing I have not done is had a single that became a number one record as Darling Love. That's something I've always wanted. And I believe if we stay here too much longer on this earth, I will have that too. You are such a delight. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. And you're truly a... Oh, you're more than welcome. Not only a great mind, but a great person. And we loved having you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. You know, it's not going to be every day no more, the same. You know, I really don't think it is. The hugging and the squeezing and the kissing and shaking hands, I think that's going to all be a thing of the past. I like how you just wove a song lyric in there very seamlessly. <laughs> you're a real, you're a real pro. <laughs>